0: Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. Thank you, uh, Nathan and worship team. Wasn't that amazing this morning? They're so fantastic every week. Uh, for us, we are looking, as you can tell by the video, at the subject of suffering in the Bible. And why not? After all, if you've been in the Stevens home over the last couple of weeks, it's been uh, some of that. We've had the, the, the 2016 past the stomach virus, virus game going on. And so, uh, yeah, it's been a, a good time. I've almost got most of my strength back here this morning, but if I begin to falter this morning, just pray, Lord, help him. So let's try that. Let's try to help him, Lord, and I feel better already. Our scripture reading is going to be in the book of Job, chapter 19, verses 13 through 27. Here we go. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look on me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I'm loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded. They, they were written on a scroll. That they were ins- inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. All God's people said, amen. Yeah. So why are we looking at the book of Job? Well, two reasons this morning, both equally true. The first is because the princess bride tells you to do that. As it said in the movie, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And the second is, well, because what the movie tells you, the Bible actually shows you. Genesis, uh, Exodus, uh, the, the Psalms, the Old Testament prophets, the, the New Testament books, if you're familiar with them, of, of Hebrews and, and First Peter are all about suffering. That's a part of life. And of course, there's Jesus, right? The, the central figure of the Bible who's described as what? As a man of what? Of sorrows, yeah. And of course, in the book of Job, we've got someone who points to Christ in that way. We've got a man. We've got Job here who is, with all apologies to George Clooney, he is a man of constant sorrows. And though we saw last week, we saw Job wrestle through to a high point in the midst of his trial. This week, we're we're seeing Job fall back. And we're seeing Job hit rock bottom. We're going to see his lowest point, his, his deepest place of despair today. And yet, and yet, in the middle of this, we're going to see Job's highest moment as well. We're going to see Job's absolute and shining triumph. We're going to see how and why Job found a way to triumph. And how you and I, even when we are at our lowest point, can find a way to do the same. So I want to trace Job's triumph this morning. In the book that bears his name, under three headings this morning, we're going to look at the darkness, at a flicker, and finally, the light. Let's begin here, number one, and, and open up here in verse 13 and just see how dark, in fact, that it's gotten for our friend Job. He says in verse 13, he says, He, God, has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. Okay, what's going on? Well, here we're seeing Job list out all the ways that all the people in his life have deserted him in the midst of his suffering. He says, even my own family wants nothing to do with me. You know, they won't even send him, you know, like a, like a, like a Christmas card anymore, apparently, or, or wish him happy birthday on Facebook because nothing says, I'm in it with you, pal, like happy birthday on Facebook. Of course, this is astounding here in a culture defined by family, by family loyalty. The depths of his suffering have caused even his own brothers to turn their backs on him. And if, as if that weren't bad enough, he says, I summon my servant, but he doesn't answer, Though I beg him with my own mouth. I mean, even Jehovah's servants, the one he had paid to wait on him, now won't come near. How insulting is that? Not just his family and servants. Now he's saying even his wife won't come near him, he says. Of course, he laughed at it. My breath is offensive to my wife, not just because our man needs a toothbrush, right? This is because, likely of the horrific disease he's contracted, something that scholars believe is called black leprosy, where your skin turns black, it rots. It begins to fall off. And the smell of the rotting boils is beyond a person's ability to endure. His physical appearance has gotten so bad, he says, Even the little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me. Again, in a a society where children were absolutely taught to respect and honor their elders, particularly adult men, this is unbelievably shameful. And now he says, All. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. Job here in chapter 19 is utterly and completely alone. No servants, no family, no friends, no wife. And he says, have pity on me. Have pity for the hand of God has struck me. Now, Maybe they've abandoned him because they're afraid some stray bolt of lightning will hit them if they come near because Job evidently is cursed in their minds. Maybe they're worried about some giant sinkhole, you know, opening up underneath them if they go near. No, but regardless of motive, the song remains the same. Job is destitute. He is bereft of a single shred of human support and decency and the absolute lack of that is beginning to crush his spirit in a way the pain of his trial could not. Do you know why that is? Why that is? Here's why. Because it's just true. (laughs) Because it's just true. When you're in the valley, right? When you're at a low moment, when you're going through it, when you're falling apart, what do you want the most? What do you need the most? You need the presence of someone who cares. Someone who's with you in it. And sometimes the lack of that Is more painful than the trial you're going through. A man by the name of Joe Bailey was a Christian author who had lost three of his sons at different points in his life. And he wrote a book about it, actually, called The View from a Hearse. And he describes a moment, one moment in time, at the funeral of his third son. And this is what he said. He said, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Yeah. Now, why was that? Why is this? Well, it's because going through extreme pain or suffering is like trying to get over, picture this, a snowy mountain pass in the winter. What do you need? What do you need to get over the pass? Well, on one hand, you could, you know, you could use a map, right? A, a map is good. A, a map gives you information about where you should go. And But even if you don't have the map... But you've got the strength to make it happen, right? To endure. You don't really need the map. You can make it, right? I mean, you could know exactly where to go. You could know exactly what to do. But if your body and your soul are exhausted trying to make it over, there's no way you make it. You'll die up there in the cold. And yet, if you had no idea of where to go, right? If you had the strength and the resolve and the emotional fuel to persevere and press on, you could make it through anything. See, intellectual answers like what we're doing today. Intellectual answers when you're suffering, oh, they're good, they're good. They're like a map. They point you in the direction you should go so you don't get lost in the middle of a freezing cold time. And yet, and yet, what do you really need? Well, What, what did Joe Bailey need, right? He didn't need, it, he didn't need a map. He needed a presence. A presence, right? And that's what Job is saying. He doesn't have here. He doesn't have a presence. He has no one. He's all alone and he's despairing. He's crying out here. I need to know. I've got someone that's for me in my pain, right? I need to see someone is with me in my suffering. And if I had that, He's saying, I can make it. But what Job saw he needed, that was someone for him in his suffering, someone with him in his pain, though, we can see. see. What Job couldn't see, we can see. What Job only longed for today, church, we can have. And here's why because only christianity says that jesus christ came into our world and identified with our suffering i mean can you can you see that jesus oh he didn't come to give us a fantastic sermon series making sense of suffering no he came to earth right and he walked around weeping crying exhausted by the toil of dealing with people's strife and suffering. Why? Why was he so, so tired all the time? Was it because he was weak? No. It was because he was perfect. He was perfect. He possessed perfect emotional health. And he spent it on us. In a world full of funerals. The Bible says Jesus Christ came into ours. And then went to His. He didn't bring us a map. He brought us himself. And therefore, we can have what Job only longed for. We can have the presence, not just of someone, oh, but of God himself in our lives. Which, and by the way, before we move on, is partly why, this is a principle here, why we're so committed, as Carrie mentioned earlier, so committed to doing life together on purpose, intentionally, in community groups or small groups or whatever, at Mosaic. And please listen, here's why. Because most people, when they, when they come into the church, and maybe this is you, especially when they come into a community group, right? They're always asking, when they come into a church, again, it's understandable, what can this group do for me, Right? You ask that. Uh, you ask, can it help me? Can it grow me? Can it support me? Whose presence can help me? And again, these are fine questions to ask because you need help. People need help. I need help. Some of you are saying, amen. First thing you've said, I can say amen to you all day. Help him, Lord. Right. You need the presence of other Christians in your life. If you don't have it, you're going to struggle like Job did in his moment. But what I also want to encourage you to ask today is this. Where can I, where can you bring your presence into the life or a group of someone who needs it? See, because community isn't just the place where you get loved and supported, right? It's the place you give love, you give support, and you need to do both to be an authentic, flourishing Christian, period. And Carrie and I have found that if we go into a group, typically we move into a relationship looking for what that group or relationship can do for us, we're frequently and typically disappointed. And if that sounds harsh to you, let me just encourage you to reconsider, restudy the doctrine of the fall and its effects on people, right? But when we go, when we move into a group or relationship saying how can we bring our presence to bear on the pain and suffering of others... We're rarely disappointed because there's always someone's need we can meet, right? Because then all we've got to do to win is show up. Show up, right? And by the way, just going once or twice a year, that's not called showing up, it's called visiting. Therefore, if, church, if we allow everything in our lives, right, our, 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 our work schedules, our travel schedules, our kids' sports schedules, vacation schedule, fun schedule, athletic schedule, or an omnipresent commitment to social media to year after year come in between our ability to bring our presence into the lives of people who, who need it and whose lives we're trying to have centered on the gospel, it's no wonder we can look up, right, and feel sometimes alone when we go through it. A guest appearance once in a while doesn't really equate uh, being able to turn around and ask, "Why isn't my church there for me?" it 's called an unrealistic expectation. It just is right man it 's quiet in here. Praise the Lord right. Do you realize that almost nothing in our culture is going to encourage you to prioritize your faith and faith community? Everything is competing for your dollars, for your attention, and your outrage. And your outrage especially, because if they can get your outrage, now they've got your attention, they'll eventually get your dollars. See? But prioritizing relationships in a community group, it's just beyond countercultural, right? And especially if you're in here and you lead one. Thank you, my brothers. You know, sisters, you are the revolution. (laughs) You're making space for your presence to meet the needs of others. Thank you for doing it. All of us, though, don't use your group. Be a blessing to it. Be a blessing to it. All right, enough of that so Job Job's utter darkness right his despair here it came because he had no one who would listen to him no one who would walk with him in it but that's not true for you or for me today we have the promised presence of God and the available presence of others if we'll go to them number two let's look at a flicker here, not just the darkness, but there's a there's a flicker here because here, uh, just after Job, after he hits rock bottom, there's actually this flicker of hope for him. It's fascinating because after all he's been through, there's like this one desert flower that keeps sprouting up through the parched floor of his soul. And and here it is, it's verses twenty three and twenty four. He says, "Oh, that my words are recorded, that they were written on a scroll." inscribed with an iron tool on lead, engraved in rock forever. So what's this flicker? What's this flower here? Well, it's actually kind of strange, but bear with me because it's going to make sense. Job here, here it is. Job is asking for his day in court with God. That's what he's talking about here. And you can know this from this word that he uses, the word scroll. This is the Hebrew word for legal documents. Job is saying, I want my words, what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, to be recorded and presented before a judge. A judge. In other words, Job here, can you see, he's doing what all sufferers eventually do and ask for. Job is asking for justice. Asking for justice. And this is incredible, right? I mean, after all he's been through, after everything he's lost, all his betrayals, this, this is the thought that keeps coming up, keeps pulling him back to God. The thought that this just isn't right, this ought not to be happening. He's asking, How can we live, right? In a world where injustice flourishes, he's saying, God, I'm asking you for my day in court. Where's justice when I suffer? Is there justice for the true sufferer? And that's Job's question. It's a question here. That's what he's asking. So let's open it up for a bit. Over the centuries, every culture has tried to give an answer to that question, and every culture must. And, and there's forms of spirituality and faith throughout history. There's been the basic system of karma, which basically means you earn your own justice, right? Uh, there's basic Buddhism, which says that, you know, you know justice, it may exist, but it's, it's really just an illusion. Uh, there were the Greek dualists for a while who who saw the world as a place where good and evil duked it out. We were soldiers on the battle of field of the gods, and we suffered because of their problems. But, but hear this, in contrast to every other culture that's ever existed, we are the first to answer Job's question with a resounding no. No. Richard Dawkins, the Oxford biologist, in his book, River Out of Eden, a Darwinian View of Life, writes this. He said, quote, The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And he won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now this is a total departure from every other culture's view of suffering. Because Dawkins here is basically saying that the reason that you suffer, that you're feeling bad on the inside, is because, catch this, you have not yet accepted that your suffering has no meaning. Your suffering has no purpose. Because the world has evolved by chance Your suffering is by chance. Your pain's by chance. Get over it, man. Quit wishing there was such a thing as justice. In fact, Dawkins goes so far as to say, if you keep on asking, like Job, where is justice in the world, you have not yet come to grips with what a Darwinian view of life says, which is that, and he says, empty, and I quote, pointless, futile, a desert of meaninglessness and insignificance. In other words, in the end, there is no justice. Suffering always wins. Thank you, Dr. Dawkins, right now. And do you know what? He's right. If there is no God. There's no God. Uh, but if you say, listen, if we just quit trying to find meaning and justice, and we just we put our energies towards fixing social problems, you know, fixing root causes, you know, we could make the world a better place. Why do we need to find meaning? But but two things. Even if you fixed root causes, would it really matter in the end? Would it really matter in the end? I mean, didn't Dawkins, just along with countless atheistic thinkers, articulate the very logical end game of a world with no God? That all your efforts at justice are empty, pointless, and meaningless. And therefore, number two, how is that going to help you when your day of suffering comes? No wonder we struggle so heavily as a culture when we suffer. But in October of 2006, about 10 years ago, Job's question was actually answered in a different way. Up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, you may remember the story. There was a gunman who who took hostages in a one-room schoolhouse in an Amish community. And after shooting 10 victims, ages 7 to 13, he killed himself. But catch this, within hours of the shooting, members of the Amish community visited the killer's family and expressed their sympathies for what the killer's family must be going through now. And when the gunman was buried a few days later, the gunman's widow was shocked to see that at the funeral, more than half of the people in attendance were from an Amish community the Amish Christians did nothing but show support and concern for the killer's family. And this story was so amazing that it was eventually made, of course, into a made-for-TV movie, (laughs) But catch this. The secular bias of the movie writers came to light as they created in the movie a fictional character. Uh, it was one of the they created a character of a mother of one of the murdered children. And this character is so shaken by the loss of her child and so unable to forgive the gunman that she almost leaves her faith in the movie despite repeated and multiple reports from the Amish community that no such thing ever happened. See, there was no one, no one who, despite their very real grief and pain and loss and tears, was close to walking away from God. And here's the point. The filmmakers couldn't comprehend an attitude toward God that enabled people to forgive this deeply, love this freely, and trust God this implicitly. Then, four years after the incident and the movie, a group of sociologists published a book about the whole thing called Amish Grace, which called out that secular bias in the movie. And they said that many of them, uh, the secular excuse me media was basically saying, well, what, you know, what was great about the whole thing was the ability of the Amish to forgive just showed what's best about what humanity has to offer. But the authors of the book said that was naive at best and willfully ignorant at worst because the author said at first the behavior of those Christians it shouldn't have surprised anyone after all right at the heart of their faith system was a man dying for their enemies and if you are a part of a community that sings about that talks about that celebrates that constantly then even forgiving the killer of your own children won't be impossible or even unlikely And second, they said, the reason these Christians could respond this way immediately in their suffering and grief was because they knew, even if they didn't get justice now, they knew it didn't mean they never would. See, the Amish Christians, again, they were a part of a community that believed that Jesus had paid for justice on the cross and that even beyond that, there would be a final day of judgment where every person would stand before a holy God and give an account of Him to Him for their life. Now, what about you? Maybe you've thought of yourself as a Christian, right? Now you're going through it and you're questioning like Job, like every human being does and must, Where is justice for me in the midst of what's happened to me or what's happening now? Where's the sense of it, right? I mean, we feel that. We want someone to pay for what's happened, right? Maybe we're just wanting someone to pay for our pain. And many times it hurts so bad, we think that if there was just something that could make sense of it all, we could live through it and maybe even be better for having gone through it. And if that's how you're feeling today, well... You're actually in good company, good company. Because that's what Job is saying here. Because even though he's sinking, even though he's despairing, this question about justice, it's the right one to ask because it's the one that keeps flicking on in his soul. It's the one that keeps him from totally going under. It's the one that keeps him coming back to God. And it's the one, as we're going to see, the one flicker that bursts actually into a flame of courage inside him. Because it points him in the end, to number three, here we go, (sighs) to the light. The light. Job's flicker bursts into flame here. Watch this. First he says, I want justice for my suffering. And then he says this. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. What in the world is he saying? Here's a hint. It's probably not what you think. What's this redeemer thing, right? Where's this coming from? This word redeemer, it's the key to the whole passage. The word here for redeemer is actually, it's an ancient Hebrew word. It's the word goel. The goel, the goel is also means, literally means kinsman redeemer. And the the kinsman redeemer was a person in the Old Testament, in a family who could, through their own legal power and resources, Step in and save a person or family from impoverishment and from destitution. If his brother died, he could step in, marry his brother's wife, provide children for the family, and keep his brother's widow from becoming a victim of poverty or slavery. Uh, If a family member became uh, a victim of poverty or enslavement, the kinsman could step in and had the right to buy them back. The kinsman redeemer was the one who would care for you, take you in if you were hurt, and provide for your needs. Now, that sounds nice. Except that this word, goel, is also used throughout the Bible to describe God 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 is described as the goel in the psalms he himself will redeem israel from all their sins and it's used to describe god when he brings his people back from exile later god is the goel in the bible see job has a goel and yet he's saying i need a goel i have a defender and yet he's saying i need another defender are you beginning to see what job's problem is is here Because on one hand, he needs God to be his go-well, right? To provide for him, to step in legally on his behalf. And yet, who is Job accusing of denying him justice? He's accusing God of denying him justice. He needs God to stand in against God. He needs God to defend him against God. He needs God to be his kinsman redeemer and at the same time to protect him from God. He needs an advocate and someone to plead for his rights. How can this happen? Job says, I know that my Goel lives and that, catch this, in the end, he will stand upon the earth. I love this. Job is saying, I know here, I know my suffering and the suffering of the world is so obscene. It looks like God is nowhere to be found. And that the only way there can be justice for suffering in the world is if God himself has the guts to come down, put skin on and advocate for me against himself. How can Job propose this? Well, he can propose this because you know at a very root level this is the only thing that will satisfy the human quest for justice, knowing that someone will pay for every wrongdoing in the world and that no one gets away, as my grandmother said, with nothing. And that's exactly who Jesus Christ became and what he did. He became, as one Bible writer put it, Our elder brother, a part of our family, our kinsman, right? He stepped in and paid the debt we owed as slaves to sin. See, in a senseless mockery of justice, at his trial, he went through a sham of an examination, lost his life to a cruel and heartless system. On the surface, it didn't make sense, right? It was so unjust, Job asked he Job asked Where is my justice if God the Goel put skin on and suffered with me? I could trust him. And God's answered his question and yours on the cross of Calvary. Because God paid Jesus back, hear this, with every curse, every curse, every wound, and for every senseless death, every tragedy, suicide, murder, every selfish thing that, by the way, you've done. Though he did nothing to deserve it. That's a senseless death. That's a senseless suffering. It doesn't make sense. And that's why, church, it's called grace. It's called grace. That's why it's called the gospel. But it gets even better than this. Because not has not only has Job worked out, the only thing that can make sense of his suffering is the suffering of a redeemer. Then he works out what the suffering of that redeemer must mean for his future. He goes on to say, the work of this go-well, this redeemer with skin on, on the earth, will be so powerful, he's going to say. It can actually bring him back from the dead. It can work backwards in a way. It can put skin back on his bones, that he'll live forever with God. Look at this, verse twenty-six. Job says, "After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I'll see God. I myself will see Him. My own eyes, I, and not another." Job here is describing what we looked at in depth last week, which is the resurrection from the dead not just paradise not just some some county fair consolation prize for the life you always wanted but could never get but he's talking about a remaking can you see of the physical world back to the place it ought to have been Job's saying even my own skin is going to come on back me job here is describing the final end of evil and suffering. Hear this, not just, not just a punishing of it, Oh, but an undoing of it, which is a far better and far sweeter victory. And it's what the whole Bible holds out as hope for your heart today. Because in Revelation 5, at the end of the Bible, at the end of the story, at the end of history, it says that the apostle John has a great vision of God Almighty one day in the future. And God Almighty is seated on his throne in heaven with a sealed scroll in his hand. And most scholars believe this is a picture Picture this scroll is of the plan of God for all time. It's sealed, John says, with seven scrolls. It means perfectly sealed. No one can open it. And then John begins to weep because he sees no one has the power to undo suffering. No one has the ability to open the scroll to carry out God's plan upon the earth. John is weeping for the lack of justice and the lack of an answer for suffering. But then He hears voices calling for him not to weep. For it says, a lamb looking as if it had been slain comes out of the midst of those voices and opens seal after seal all seven of them and then opens the scroll How? Can this lamb take the throne, open the scroll, and carry out God's plan for all time? Oh, the voices in heaven begin to sing this to the lamb. It says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign where? Upon the earth. Oh, do you see what this moment is showing us? See, John is seeing in the distant future the ultimate defeat of evil. He's seeing not just that evil's been punished, not just ended, oh, but undone. Evil in the end has backfired on itself because Jesus suffered, not despite his suffering, because he suffered. He can undo evil in God's plan. Injustice and suffering defeat themselves. And this is showing you not only can you trust this God, this God who's taken a bullet for his creation by becoming his creation, but that this God is so powerful he'll undo it all. And therefore, hear this. The Bible doesn't offer you as much of an explanation for suffering as an answer To suffering, see? Job is saying, Revelation's showing, that because of the goel, an answer has been given and will be carried out and that all who hear it will be satisfied in the end. And when our friend Fyodor Dostoevsky, who was no fool, who saw more than his fair share of human suffering, when he saw that, when he looked at, when he read Revelation 5 and he got it, this is what he said. He said, "Oh, I believe like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the infinite and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. He's insulting us there, by the way. He's saying we can only see X leads to Y, leads to Z, and things in order, but God sees the whole thing. He says that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious, Revelation 5, will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they have shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Yeah. Job saw it too. And that's why his heart didn't quit in the midst of his trial. This is Job's shining moment, church. He sees that one day, even if he dies, his sufferings will turn, turn to glory. How? He saw he had a redeemer. That redeemer could be trusted. His name is Jesus. He doesn't just give you a map. He gives you himself.